Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, we're resuming our series in Ephesians today called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and pull out the sermon notes that uh, you received when you arrived this morning. If you forgot to grab a sermon note handout, uh, there should still be some on the welcome table. Uh, you can feel free to get up and grab, grab one if you need one still. We'd like you to be able to follow along and take notes. And if you forgot your Bible, uh, you can borrow one of ours on the information table. Again, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can learn with us. Uh, as you turn there, uh, let me just re- refresh your mind on what we've been learning in the book of Ephesians. Uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've not been in Ephesians for a while. Uh, so uh, let me just briefly uh, touch on the background uh, for the book and the, and the themes in the book. Uh, Ephesians is one of four letters that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was incarcerated for the first time in Rome for preaching the gospel. The other three letters that he wrote while there under house arrest are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The apostle had helped plant the church in the city of Ephesus during his second missionary journey around 53 AD. He then left and returned a year later to Ephesus and stayed there for three years preaching and teaching. It's now, when he writes this, about 60 to 61 AD, or about three to four years after his departure. The book breaks down very similar to Colossians. In fact, it shares a lot in common with Colossians in that you can split it in half. Uh, The first three chapters cover our position in Christ. Uh, The first three chapters of Ephesians are very theological. And then the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, are very practical. They talk about our purpose in Christ. And we completed the first half of the book in March, Uh, The second half of the book that we're starting here today applies the theology from the first three chapters to several areas of life, like personal holiness, conflict, marriage, parenting, and spiritual warfare, just to name a few. The theme verse in this letter that Paul wrote is Ephesians 1.4. If you've not yet underlined it or highlighted it in your Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. But let's uh, say it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, throughout this letter, Paul reminds us indirectly and directly that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were chosen by him for a purpose. And your position in Christ that we learned in chapters 1 through 3 should determine and shape your purpose in life. Well, what's our purpose in life? Simply put, it's to glorify God in everything that we do. And if you do not yet know Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, you can have purpose in your life. You can have all things working together for good by repenting of your sin and trusting in Him alone for your salvation. Now, at the beginning of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul unpacks the importance of unity in the Lord's church. Thus, our big idea for today, or the sermon in a sentence, is this, unity with diversity is a vital sign of a healthy church. Unity with diversity is a vital sign of a healthy church. Now, notice I'm saying a vital sign, meaning it's not the only one, it's one of several. Unity is often confused with a few similar but different terms. For example, unity is not uniformity. 
Uniformity is everyone looking alike. Uh, For example, a football team with players all wearing the same jersey may be uniform, but that doesn't mean they are united. Unity also is not unanimity. Unanimity is complete agreement across the board. It's possible to disagree, for example, with a family member, a church member, or a team member in sports, and yet still be unified, working towards a common goal. According to the New Testament, unity is a oneness of heart and mind. It it means to have the same purpose or to agree on the majors, allowing room for disagreement on the minors. And this is what the Apostle Paul wants to speak to us about today. If you have your Bibles open, please follow along with me as I read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the first of four truths that Paul tells us about unity in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And the first point is this on your outline. Unity is established by pursuing humility. It's established by pursuing humility. Paul starts out here in verse 1 with, I therefore urge you, I urge you, not ask you, I urge you. And I'm emphasizing it on purpose because, I, because the Greek word and the tense of that word that he uses in the original language carries more force than what the English translation shows us. You see, as 21st century Americans, when we would say to somebody, hey, you know, I just want to urge you to consider this, we, we usually say it casually, but Paul is not saying it that way. He's using force. In fact, the word in the original means to implore, to urge strongly. Well, what's he urging us to do? To walk in a manner worthy In the context of the entire book, the apostle is essentially saying here in the first half of verse 1, hey, Ephesians, based on everything I told you so far in the first three chapters of my letter about your position in Christ, now live your life in such a way that it reflects all those blessings you have. Live like you really believe it. Now this is just, Ephesians 4 verse 1 is just one of many verses in the New Testament that demolishes the false gospel of easy believism. Easy believism teaches that someone can receive Christ as Savior but not have to change, not have to walk with Him or submit to Him as their Lord. That is nowhere supported in the New Testament. Paul, contrary to the false gospel of easy believism, says here, if you're saved, then walk with the Lord. Well, how should they walk? Well, he he says in verse 2, with humility. This is actually, and I learned this this week, I didn't know this until I started diving in deep in my studies and looking at background commentaries. This is actually quite bold of the apostle to challenge them with humility. And that's because in first century Greek culture, they despised humility. They saw it as a vice that only slaves should have to do or practice. The word the apostle uses in the original for humility means to have a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Humility produces gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, as you see there in verse 2. 
You see, uh, humble people have an accurate view of themselves in light of God's holiness. And when they do, it prevents them from dwelling upon the weaknesses of others and gives them the patience to put up with them, especially because they're putting up with you. You see, that's, you can't bear with one another in love for the sake of unity unless you have humility. In other words, churches that divide and split often do so because they are proud. Now, notice because of the threat of splitting churches, and it's something that Paul dealt with in um, a few of his letters at least, uh, false teachers were trying to invade uh, several of the New Testament churches, and Paul had to use the power of his pen to write them and try and course correct things that were happening to prevent splits from these false teachers sucking away members. Well, he says in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word eager, or as some translations render it, make every effort. In the original, it carries a sense of diligence or exertion or hastiness and urgency. Uh, meaning true unity doesn't happen passively or automatically. We all want unity, we all like unity, but what Paul's saying is it takes work. Just like physical health for the human body, we all want to be physically healthy and we all want to look good, but it doesn't happen automatically. We have to exert ourselves at the gym. And we have to do maintenance for our bodies to look as good as some of you do. Well, let's look back at the text here as I read verses 4 through 6, and Paul continues to expand this, this concept of unity. He says, there is, verse 4, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's the second truth about unity that Paul tells us this morning, and that is number two, unity is maintained by focusing on truth. Unity is maintained by focusing on truth. Unfortunately, there are some people who have been trying for years to unite churches around anything except truth. The truth in Scripture is what I'm referring to. Some have tried to unite churches around common causes, such as feeding the poor, or getting a president elected, or cleaning up the city. Although such causes are admirable, none of them are listed in the New Testament as sources of unity. The deceiver doesn't mind if churches unite around social justice issues. He, Satan's like, you guys go ahead. That's fine. Just don't stand for the truth of God's word. I want that gone. You see, because if I can get the truth of God's word thrown out, if I can get churches to stop using it or standing for it, nobody gets saved. Hell gets populated. Heaven does not. That's what the deceiver wants. We need to remember that Paul spent the first three chapters of Ephesians laying the doctrinal foundation before he calls the Ephesians to unite. And one reason for this is that causes and fads and politicians come and go. But the timeless truth of God's word will never pass away. And this is why church unity is, is built on the never-changing word of God, while church division is built on the ever-changing desires of men. Now, the New Testament speaks of both local churches 
and the universal church. A local church is a gathering of true Christ followers under elder leadership in a specific community. Whereas the universal church is all true Christ followers everywhere in the world. Thus, a legitimate local church is really a piece of, a slice of, the universal church. And legitimate, well, sorry, uh, after changing the uh, Ephesians, excuse me, after charging the Ephesians to maintain the unity of their local church in verse 3, Paul, notice, he reminds them that they are a part of something bigger than themselves. That's what he's doing here in verses 4 through 6. He does so by saying in verse 4, there is one body, meaning they are part of the universal church at that time, which includes the believers in Galatia and Philippi and Colossae and Corinth and so on. Next, the apostle lists some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith in rapid-fire succession in order to show his readers the powerful truths that they share in common. And they share these truths in common with each other and other churches like them in Colossae and Corinth and Philippi and so on. Now, unity is it's important, but the Lord never asks us to pursue unity at all costs. In his book, Warnings to Churches, J.C. Ryle explains that there are times when unity is not possible, and even times where it may need to be broken. He writes this, Unity without the gospel is worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. Unity which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth is worth nothing. It, it's, it's not unity that pleases God. Ryle's insights there uh, caused me to, help me to realize, excuse me, this week that we, we focus on the unity of heaven and all the, the believers and the angels worshiping the Lord but one thing we don't think about is that hell is unified too. They're just unified around something different. A lie. Which I think helps us understand where Ryle is coming from. Now, there's encouragement, though, in this passage for us. It's a reminder that we too, as Vanguard Bible Church, we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Not only are there other church plants in our network who are gathering this morning right now in schools just like us to worship and study God's word and fellowship, but there are churches all over the world who believe what we believe, who have a high view of scripture and are gathering as well to do the same thing we're doing. And I think it's important to remember that because it is... It is easy, and perhaps the evil one plays a role in this, it's easy to start to think that we're all by ourselves. But we're not alone. So unity with diversity is a vital sign of a healthy church. Look, if you would, at uh, verse 7. Next, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here's number three on your outline. Paul is telling us that unity is strengthened by serving others with our gifts. Unity is strengthened by serving others with our gifts. The New Testament teaches that one of many things that takes place when a sinner is born again is the imparting from the Lord into the believer of at least one spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a unique ability given by God to Christ followers so they can serve his church. It, it reinforces the fact that God has called all Christ followers to serve. It's, it is the Lord, in essence, saying, not only am I going to tell you to serve, I'm going to show you where to serve with the gift I give you, and I'm going to help you to serve with the gift I give you. I'm going to remove 
and as many excuses as I can for you. So you can serve others in my church. In essence, so that the only excuse is you. Now, spiritual gifts are not the same as natural talents. Talents such as a singing voice or athletic ability are given by God when you are physically born. Spiritual gifts, on the other hand, are given when someone is spiritually born again. Some examples of spiritual gifts in the New Testament include serving, encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy, and much more. There are two things that Paul tells us about spiritual gifts in these, uh, the next set of verses here. Here's letter A. The first thing he tells us is that spiritual gifts are given, not earned. They are given, not earned. This shows up in verse 7 when he says, but grace was given to each one of us. He's not referring to the grace in salvation or in the gospel. Grace is unmerited favor, but he's more specifically saying that the Lord showed grace by giving spiritual gifts. In fact, when Paul talks about spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, he uses uh, the Greek word charismatos, which uh, literally can be translated grace gifts. Charis, the Greek word for grace. Charismatos. Meaning we don't get to choose our gifts. We did nothing to earn them, and we can do nothing to lose them. Now, one of the difficulties that comes with being committed to verse-by-verse expository preaching is that I can't skip verses 8 through 10. I wish I could. Just to be honest and transparent this morning. Verses 8 through 10 provide what one commentator calls an interpretive conundrum. And I'm using his words because I could not agree with him more. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me here because I had to spend a couple extra hours in study trying to figure out what verses 8 through 10 says after wrestling with, will anybody really ask what it is about? Could I maybe skip it? Maybe nobody will. What if they do ask? And I don't know. That's bad. I guess I'm going to have to figure it out. I can't skip it. So if you would indulge me for a couple of minutes. The difficulty with verses 8, 9, and 10 is that there is a lack of consensus amongst evangelical scholars as far as what Paul is talking about here. And when this happens, and it happens occasionally, not very often, when I come across a verse or a passage like this, what I do is I consult multiple sources, in this case, I'm using four to five different commentaries from different scholars, from different schools. I read what they think because they build their life and make a living studying this book, Ephesians in particular. And then I pray, and then I'll tell you what I think. And I'll tell you what I think, meaning I'm not willing to die on this hill, okay? This is up for debate. But here's what I think is most probable. Having said this, context is king whenever you're studying God's word. And I think context should guide our interpretation. So now that I've gotten all of my qualifications and excuses out of the way, let's read verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay. I'm going to do my best to clear up the confusion that Paul gives us here. In verse 8, Paul is quoting loosely Psalm 68, 18. 
it probably appears as an indented quote in your Bible, just like it does mine. Psalm 68 essentially describes God as a victorious general over Israelites, the Israelites' enemies. Verse 18 of Psalm 68 says that a conquering king or general has the right to share his plunder with those who are identified with him. Thus the ascending and then the giving of gifts to men, the men who fought with him. Now, in Ephesians 4 8, the apostle is applying Psalm 68 18 to Jesus. He's quoting it loosely and applying it to Jesus giving spiritual gifts. Meaning, Jesus is the king, and death is what he conquered through his resurrection. The captives that you see mentioned uh, in verse 8 are not enemies in this case, but rather sinners whom he saved from being captive to their own sin. And the gifts he gave are spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in verses 11 and 12, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, what do we do with the parenthetical in verses 9 and 10? At least it's in parentheses in my Bible, probably in yours as well. It's a parenthetical because Paul seems to be adding a little explanation to what he just said in verse 8, quoting Psalm 68. Now, some have interpreted verse 9, where you see there, if you look at your Bible, where it says he descended into the lower regions of the earth. Some have taken the view that Christ went to hell during the three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection. That is a semi-popular view of verse 9. However, after doing a lot of research, I just have to honestly say, there's not enough evidence to support that view, that when Jesus was buried in the grave uh, on Good Friday, that he went down to hell and saved some people in hell before resurrecting himself on Easter Sunday. There's just not enough evidence for that. And it has no relevance to the topic of unity and spiritual gifts. Here's my best attempt at making sense of verses 9 and 10. And in order to try and diminish as much confusion as I can, I made a, a table, a chart, to, to help you understand what I think is happening here. And I'm a visual learner as well, so I'm hoping this helps you. So, verse 9, when Paul says he ascended, I think Paul is referring to Jesus' resurrection. But he says the ascension in verse 9 had to follow a descension which I think he means Jesus' burial. In verse 10, when he says Jesus descended, I think he's referring to the incarnation, meaning Jesus descended from heaven, came down to be born in a manger, Christmas story, to be incarnated as baby Jesus, to live in the human flesh. And then in verse 10, when Paul says that he ascended again, I think Paul's referring to the ascension in Acts 1, where Jesus, about 40, 45 days after his resurrection and walking around with the disciples, says goodbye to them and goes home to be with the Father. And then in Acts 2, the Spirit is sent at Pentecost. I also think it says that because in verse 10, it says that Jesus did this that he might fill all things. I think this is possibly referring to the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost to fill the early believers and give them spiritual gifts. Whew. I'm glad that's over. Thank you for bearing with me. I hope that helps. Now, let's look at verses 11 and 12 as Paul continues to talk about unity and now the role spiritual gifts play in unity. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Here's letter B on your outline. The second thing he's telling us about gifts is that all spiritual gifts are for edifying, but some equip as well. All spiritual gifts are for edifying, but some gifts equip as well. The five gifts that 
are mentioned here in verse 11 also served as offices when the church was started in the first century. Today, I believe these gifts can refer to different types of pastoral leadership the Lord places in churches, with a couple of exceptions. I have seen, I think it's, I think it's possible for lay members to have the gifts of evangelist and teacher. Now, let me quickly walk through these five gifts or offices that he talks about. I'm going to try and define them for you. Uh, the apostles, it literally means one sent as an authoritative delegate or one sent with a message. In the first century, this word was a title that referred to men who served alongside of Jesus or Paul. Now, although the office of apostle was closed after the first century, that's why you don't call me Apostle Carey, that would be bad. There is New Testament evidence, however, that would support a secondary meaning for apostle, and it's I call it the gift of apostleship. Apostleship. Ministers with this gift are great catalyst leaders. They launch new churches and new ministries, and then they usually get bored after a while and turn them over to someone else to manage, so they can go start the next thing that God called them to do. Um, they are the type of missionaries that go overseas, plant a church, train the leaders in Africa, for example, turn it over to them, and then go to another city in Africa or village and plant another church and repeat the process. Next, Paul says there are prophets that God gave. Uh, the word prophetes here in the text literally means one who proclaims or to proclaim a divinely imparted message. Similar to apostle, the primary definition of the word deals with the office of prophet. In the Old and the New Testament, prophets confronted sin, proclaimed truth, wrote scripture, and helped lay the foundation for the church. Now, most people think of prophets as like weather forecasters or uh, foretelling is a word used sometimes. They predicted the future. However, that's not the only thing they did. Prophets in the scriptures were also forthtelling or forthright. Although the office of prophet closed at the first century, ministers who have this gift today are known for being passionate about biblical truth, boldly proclaiming it, and calling God's people to repentance. Prophets or, or those with the prophet gift are straight shooters, they're very direct. Next, Paul says God gave evangelists as well. The word means proclaimer of good news in the original text. Now, although all Christ followers are expected to share their faith in Christ, the Lord has made some exceptional at leading others to faith. Ministers that have this gift, they have a passion for lost souls. They capitalize on opportunities to witness and share the gospel fearlessly, and they see people respond. And I happen to think they, they tend to be extroverts. Not always, but most of the time, extroverts. Willing to just go up to somebody on a plane and share the gospel with them. Or on a bus or subway and strike up a conversation with them. Next, Paul says there were shepherds. This uh, is rendered pastors in some translations, but the Greek word that's used here for shepherd or pastor literally means to tend, as in tending a flock of sheep, or to protect. Ministers with the shepherding gift excel at caring for and nurturing and protecting God's flock. Men with this gifting are great associate pastors who specialize in counseling and Funerals and nursing home and hospital visitations. They typically don't have a preaching gift, although sometimes you see that, but they, I, I've never seen a shepherd with a leadership gift. The gift of leadership that Paul talks about in Romans 12. That, for that reason, shepherd-gifted pastors usually struggle in senior leadership roles. Next, Paul says, the Lord gave teachers. There's the fifth gift that he references. Teachers, literally meaning to teach or to give instruction. 
Ministers with this gift have a passion for studying and communicating and applying the scriptures for the body of Christ. And interestingly, the level of gifting they have, generally, but not always, is reflected in the size of audience they can command. There are pastors of small churches that are gifted to teach, and then we know there are pastors of very large churches who are exceptional teachers and have radio and TV ministries and published books. And their gifting is just a lot stronger and more developed. But all are important and all assigned by the Lord where they serve. Now, having listed these five gifts, Paul then says what the purpose of them is in verse 12. It's to equip the saints. It's not for these pastors to do all the ministry because they can't. They don't have all the gifts necessary, nor all the time or the energy. Instead, the role of pastors and leaders is to equip the saints to help do the work of the ministry. The word equip, interestingly, means to put right. Its sister term in the original language, is, uh, original language excuse me, was used in Greek culture to describe the setting of a broken bone in surgery. And I think this word equip portrays that imagery because it, it, it has the idea of repairing or completing something so it can do what it was created to do. Now, I don't have a lot of time left to talk more about gifts. I, a few years ago, did a whole series on spiritual gifts, but if you'd like to learn more about spiritual gifts, you can find more of them in Romans 12. Uh, verses 6 through 8, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as well. Uh, these two passages contain several more gifts that God gives to lay members. Now, what Paul, I think, is trying to convey is this. Like a choir that makes great harmony in singing different parts, the Lord wants his church to do great ministry by everyone serving according to their gifting, everyone fulfilling a different role, each role important, whether it's behind the scenes or up front and visible. So the encouragement that's here for us is this, whatever the Lord calls us to do, he enables us to do. And since he calls every born-again believer to serve and build up the unity of the church, he's also given us spiritual gifts to enable us to do so. And praise the Lord for that. And so the diversity that's talked about in the big idea and that I think is in the text here is the diversity of gifts within the body. Unity with diversity is a vital sign of a healthy church. Next, the apostle tells us how using our gifts benefits the church body. Look with me at verses 13 to 16 as we circle the tower for landing. Paul says, until this, this equipping of the body by the church leaders should take place until, verse 13, we all attain the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow, to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's number four on your outline. Unity is protected by pursuing spiritual maturity. Unity is protected by pursuing spiritual maturity. These last four verses don't describe spiritual maturity in complete detail, but they do give us at least three qualities that we should all work towards. These qualities can also help us discern how mature or immature someone is in the faith. So what does spiritual maturity look like to Paul? Well, 
Um, here's letter A on your outline. Maturing believers have A, stability. They have stability. Paul uses the metaphor of children swimming in the ocean to push us towards maturity here. For those of you who have taken your children or grandchildren out to the coast to walk on the beach, um, this imagery it sure is easy for you to, to conjure up in your mind. He's describing like a toddler walking in the water at the beach for the first time, baby believers lack the strength to withstand the forces of false teachers bombarding them with different messages and deceitful people. And baby believers, like toddlers, uh, can't even control their own emotions. However, according to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, this can be remedied with a steady diet of spiritual milk and then solid food from the Word. So Paul doesn't want us to be like toddlers, tossed around by the waves of false doctrine and deceitful humans and our own emotions. Next, another sign of maturity that he references here is integrity, letter B. Maturing believers have integrity. Just as toddlers lie when their hands are caught in the cookie jar, baby believers either lie or withhold truth because they don't want to be embarrassed, or they want to continue sinning, or they fear man more than God. Now, on the other hand, maturing believers speak the truth in love, as you see in verse 15, even when it might incur consequences, even when it might cost them a relationship, they speak the truth because they fear the Lord more than they fear man. They do it lovingly, but they speak the truth. Next, uh, letter C, the third quality of spiritual maturity that Paul references here. Not all, this is not all the qualities, but... The third one in this text is humility. Humility. Maturing believers realize they are just one small part of a larger body. Thus, they resist consumerism by asking either out loud or in their heads, what can the church do for me? Instead, maturing believers ask, what can I do for the church? Because the church is not about me. It's about the Lord. There's something bigger going on that I'm a part of. So they put the needs of the church before their own. The, the maturing believer has a humble mindset that in essence says, it's a privilege for me to be a part of the Lord's church. Instead of, the Lord's church is lucky to have me. So, stability, integrity, humility, three signs or qualities of spiritual maturity that Paul wants us to pursue. So, how do we apply what we've covered here? A lot of, a lot of content here in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4. How do we apply and put feet to what we've learned this is important because Jesus said in, in uh, Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I, I know I want to be blessed. How about you? Well, then let's spend the remainder of our time talking about how we can put what Paul is saying into action. Here's the first of three applications. Uh, the first, I think we need to aggressively pursue spiritual maturity. We need to aggressively pursue spiritual maturity. You see, when we stand before the Lord, we will have to give an account for what we did with our time, with our money, and our level of maturity. This includes pursuing humility, reminding yourself that you're a sinner saved by grace, and learning sound doctrine so you're not tossed around by false teaching, learning how to control your emotions. But in addition to practicing spiritual discipline, some of the godliest, Jesus-loving Christ followers I've had the privilege of being around also 
read good, solid Christian books in addition to God's Word. And typically, they would, they would read solid Christian books on topics they struggle with or topics they're curious about in order to move themselves down the road in their maturity so that they grow and keep learning. So I just have to ask, is there a book you need to be reading this summer to help your walk with the Lord go to that next level? I can recommend some if you need some help. Number two, second application. Appreciate the gifts others have, but extend grace for the gifts they lack. Appreciate the gifts others have, but extend grace for the gifts they lack. Most of you are using your gifts to serve the Lord's church here at Vanguard. And it is awesome. It is one of the great strengths of our church, one of several strengths of our church. Now, I said most, not all. Wink, wink. The doctrine of spiritual gifts means the Lord has given each of us at least a couple unique abilities for building up his church. However, it also means we lack a majority of the gifts. The Lord did this on purpose because he wants us to be interdependent on each other. You see, if he gave us all the spiritual gifts, we all would probably stay home and do home church forever like we did during the pandemic shutdown. Say, I don't need anybody else because I can do this and this and this and this because God's enabled me to do it all for myself. Which means if you had all the spiritual gifts, you'd be like Jesus and, well, you wouldn't have any problems, I guess. Unfortunately, though, our sin nature makes us prone to elevate our gifts to be the standard that everyone else should have while dwelling on the lack of gifts they have. Or another way to say this is don't expect others to appreciate your strengths while you dwell on their weaknesses. <laughs> so, for example, it takes humility to, to admit to someone, to say to someone, I so appreciate your spiritual gifts of giving and encouragement. What a blessing they are to our church. Those are gifts I don't have. I'm not good at those things, but you are. See, that, that takes humility to lift that other church member up and to lower yourself and admit, I'm not good at those things that you are good at. And I praise the Lord for that. Number three, I think Paul's reminding us we need to protect the unity of the church. You heard me say earlier, it requires diligence and maintenance. Paul wrote uh, the Ephesians, uh, he wrote to the Ephesians, Addressing the entire church, not Timothy, who was the pastor there. This means that the entire church is responsible for protecting its unity, not just Pastor Timothy. We can proactively protect the unity of our church by elevating biblical convictions above personal preferences, by not complaining, not criticizing other members or leaders behind their backs, not gossiping and being quick to resolve conflict when we have a problem. Now, keep in mind, protecting the unity of the church might mean you have to have a hard conversation with somebody. It might mean you have to interrupt somebody talking to you after this service here today, and you might have to say, um, hold on, excuse me a second, is it okay for you to be sharing this with me? Does, does this person know you feel that way? Have you talked to them about this? You see, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16, is a sobering reminder that every conversation, every email, every text message, social media post, either strengthens or weakens the unity of the church. And thus, we should think before we speak, or hit send, or post, so that we strengthen the unity of the church. Well... If you play the piano, or you know someone who does, or you own a piano, but don't play, like I do, then you know that pianos can fall out of tune. I have one in my house that's out of tune. A piano that's out of tune sounds horrible. 
if not painful to the ears. The strings tighten or loosen over time because of room temperature or frequent use, causing the keys to no longer make the notes that were assigned to them. Recognizing this problem, a man named John Shore in 1711, he was a British trumpet player, he set out to solve this problem by inventing a tuning fork. A tuning fork is a a two-pronged, entirely metal device about the length of a butter knife. This simple yet ingenious invention is able to guarantee 100% pitch accuracy. Regardless of whether you hit it hard or against a soft, solid surface, such as the bottom of your shoe, a tuning fork always makes the same note. In fact, uh, this is interesting. I found this in my research this week. There are antique shops that sell 300-year-old tuning forks that still produce notes as clear and crisp as the day they were made. A tuning fork makes it possible for, say, 50 pianos in different homes to all be tuned to the same fork, perfectly in tune with each other and united with each other. The Lord has provided a timeless, 100% accurate tuning fork for the church called His Word. Christ followers who love and study and apply and submit to God's Word will be unified and never out of tune. Let's be the kind of church that makes beautiful music together because we are in tune with our conductor. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.